What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. I have Govind Pandey, who is CEO of TBWA, which is a 100-person shop in Mumbai, India. Govind has spent over two decades in the agency world. He's had a long stint at McCann, uh, working his part of which involved uh, the role of COO and also a long stint at Ogilvy. Govind, I'm very excited to talk to you today. Welcome to Sweathead. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the to the conversation. One thing we wanted to talk about is being a CEO of a very well-known global agency brand with multinational clients that is trying to see itself as a startup, which is how you see the agency right now. Could you tell me a little bit about why you see TBWA in India as something of a startup? Yeah, I mean, so like you said, that... Um, it's a big global agency and uh, in fact uh, was the ad, ad week uh, global agency of the year you know this year so it's a, it's pretty well established in india we've been around for i think close to a decade as a 100% owned uh, you know agency but india is an extremely uh, competitive market and there've been agency brands like ogilvy and jwt uh, which have been you know here for more than 100 years and mccann and Lintas is a sort of fairly strong brand in the market. Uh, Lintas or uh, Low is, has been there for more than 100 years, actually. So, and these guys uh, are huge and they're doing well. When I was leaving McCann and joining TBWA, one of the things that uh, was going on in my head was, you know, we keep talking about the change, you know, the consumer is changing, you know, and India is a very, very young country. I mean, close to uh, 65% people uh, under the age of 30. And that's a lot of people. You know, media scene is changing. You know, this whole digital conversation. India is an extremely well-penetrated market, uh, you know, on the mobile front. And a lot of young people consuming a lot of uh, advertising or content through the mobile. So purely uh, from a sense of uh, rate of change, probably in the last 20 plus year that I've been in the market, it's like changed dramatically. And somehow the agencies haven't kept up. And there's this ongoing debate about uh, what of the old model do we keep? What changes? What does not change? The storytelling fundamentally is storytelling, you know, is the medium changing? And what is the right configuration of uh, skill sets? Because um, there are this whole uh, sort of set of digital agencies which have come up, and there are these old classical, traditional TVC. Uh, driven agencies, which are, which are you know the market leaders in a way. So when you are trying to form an agency in these times, when everything around you is changing, what do you build? You know what should be the proposition? What is an ideal mix of good old storytelling and the sort of digital domain expertise? Does the form sort of the grammar of storytelling fundamentally change and the channels change? And what should be the interesting mix of people within the group within the agency? Uh, so that we can uh, answer a lot of the new questions that the CMOs have in the best possible way. So it's a startup because I don't really have a fixed template. I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of trying to figure things out on the, on the go in a way. Uh, depending on the question that the clients are asking, uh, we, we sort of start from first principles and try and construct an answer. And, and some answers work better than the others. It, it, I mean, the feeling is very much like a startup that broadly we know what we're trying to do and we mm -hmm. go to market every day with an interesting proposition. Mm -hmm. Some of those things work. I mean, then we try and do more of that or, uh, you know, some things don't work. Uh, so we, we sort of try and stop that. Yeah. And, and what are some of the questions that CMOs are bringing to you? 
So I think there's a lot of anxiety around this sort of digital piece. Uh, you know, uh, you know, do this direct to consumer? Am I spend you know wasting too much money on this broadcast media uh, when we have close to 600 young people who are essentially on on mobile? They are probably not spending time watching television. So is there a better model of uh, going to them? Uh, for example, a couple of days back we had a a pitch uh, with a large retail group where they they want a brand to be created purely online. I mean, so it's a, it's almost like uh, how do you so the entire sort of journey, the customer journey from discovery of the brand mm. to the final purchase. Can we construct a model that the you know the entire thing is happening online and uh, in a market like India where uh, it is difficult to imagine because it's a huge market and you know to be basic. To create a basic level of awareness, you need television, you know, to create a basic level of credibility. So there is no one right way of doing anything right now in the market. So, I mean, obviously, depending on the budgets that the clients have, there are some best practices, you know, that continue. But uh, everyone is experiencing this change. Everyone is trying to figure out a new model of doing things. So, mm. there, I mean, the other interesting species in the market is this sort of founder CEO. I mean, it's a fairly, fairly startup driven uh, market and lots of young people trying to do their own thing. So I mean, I I find this founder CEO as a as a as a person fairly interesting because you know these guys who are actually starting their own brands or their own business, trying to clean up their story or the brand story as they are building the business, mm-hmm. and therefore the brand is not something that you. Uh, put a top layer on the business. It's it's you know pretty much embedded. You know it's it's a uh, you know so the brand and business, where brand is playing a central role in driving the business and attracting a certain kind of community or customers and and also the comfort of knowing that the guy that you're talking to is actually the decision taker and you know he can actually make fundamental changes and you're not caught up in the sort of brand bureaucracy of going through the process of you know creating incremental changes and ending up with doing nothing. So mm-hmm. it's a fairly dynamic market. I mean, there are many things happening. You know, one of the sort of cliches or the truths about India is that, uh, you know, everything that you say about India is, uh, you know, uh, and the opposite of that, when mm-hmm. both are equally true. So the television works in India, television doesn't work in India, both are equally valid. You know? so, so you mentioned 65% of the population are under the age of 35, and that is 600 million people. Could you tell us some of the behaviors that they have, the technology that they're using that might be more specific to India than perhaps to other countries? So, yeah, that's a sort of, you know, good question because, I mean, a lot of these global clients, you know, these conversations or these presentations on millennials, there's always a sort of pushback on, is there a specific Indian millennial inside? So there is a generational sort of cohort. And I think these guys are more homogeneous than the, uh, than the other generations in India with probably their, you know, their counterparts elsewhere in the world because they have access to uh, the same media, they have the same sort of shared cultural resources. They probably have the, doing a lot of similar conversation. The channels they are on, on Instagram or Snapchat and their role models and the people they follow and what is cool and what is not cool. There's a lot of similarity in that. I, I think that they have a higher stake in the future and therefore a basic sense of wanting to make a real difference, however small that may be. I, I think 
that's also pretty much you know there in india they're far more empowered self empowered and in a in a country like india which has been um, a pretty um, socially normative classical do's and don'ts and what is right and what is wrong and what should be done and what should not be done uh, has been pretty coded i mean it's a it's a kind of a you know continuous culture in a way so you know we don't adapt to new things in a dramatic sort of a way we sort of assimilate them we take the good bits in and drop the things which don't sort of you know work with us as a culture and it has a you know very uh, unique process of assimilation of change in a way so so i think the individualism if you like it's a very family centered individualism so uh, i think the youngsters are trying to find their own sense of agency within the structure of a family within the structure of a larger society i think that it's a interesting flavor of uh, millennial ideology where uh, you want to take the whole thing forward without necessarily rebelling against anything it's a higher sense of individualism yet within the framework of the society so i think as an instinct my sense is probably more eastern culture driven and i mean the the youngsters live with their families for far longer they don't leave their houses they don't leave their families they pretty well live in harmony with their society and things like that so i mean i think that can be one specific nuance where i think the indian indian millennial is slightly uh, you know different from from elsewhere right right you mentioned global insights having worked in several global agencies now where you must have inherited global brand positionings and maybe even global clients what are some of the challenges and frustrations that you and your colleagues might face when working with a brand that doesn't come from india in the last sort of whatever 20 years i think the the two big uh, major shifts in the way that we do advertising have been uh, around 91 or so india globalized is basically opened up to the rest of the world until then you know the it was a closed economy it only had indian brands and the economy sort of grew at a fairly as uh, what used to be called the hindu rate of growth <laughs> you know it's one and a half two percent year on year and uh, for various reasons uh, the economy opened up and the and the global brands came to india and it's a huge market i mean when there are some 1.3 billion people all the global brands uh, look at india as a market uh, so there was that big influx and uh, indian agencies uh, needed to learn and the global marketers needed to learn as to how to pitch global brands in a in a market like india and the second shift of course is you know what i think is uh, you know what we're going through in the last 4 5 years which is this entire uh, digital uh, play in a way because uh, very young market and there are you know these huge massive telecom players which have dropped the cost of data so dramatically that the primary mode of consumption of a lot of content video content heavy bandwidth consuming content is on mobile so so i think there have been sort of these two big shifts uh, in a way uh, talking about the global brand uh, yeah so i think there was an initial burst where a lot of global brands came into the market and they they thought uh, you know we done this in uh, brazil or you know any of these sort of emerging markets and uh, so you know we can take this model and plug and play you just put this transplant it here in this market and it should work and a lot of people you know failed in the initial sort of phase because india is a is a fairly sort of strong culture and the meaning uh, that we seek from the categories or the brands 
is specific to the culture and uh, one of the other things about the india uh, indian market is really the uh, what brands mean it's a it's a very context sensitive market i mean it's a the role uh, that brands play in this market is very very specific to this market it's like let's say i will take an example of uh, suzuki now suzuki was the first um, brand of uh, cars in this market and uh, at a global level maybe is this japanese technology and you know probably you know good engine and and all those equities came in but in the specific context of the indian market till then uh, there were very few choices available of a of a four wheel uh, automobile and uh, it was an affordable car and you got access to a, you know four wheels and the the meaning that the the, the society sought from it and conferred on it was of a after of escape from middle class so there is no way that somebody who's you know either sitting in new york or in paris or in uh, tokyo would try and position suzuki as a car which helps you escape from middle class so escape from middle class yeah yeah what does that mean i mean most middle class people would uh, ride on two wheelers and the scooters and i'm talking about mid 80s early 90s kind of a scenario when the early sort of globalization brands coming in so even if you made it big and you were sort of progressing well in life socially you were you know mobile and you were moving upward but there was no way to uh, demonstrate that to the world at large you had a two wheeler and your colleague who was probably or your neighbor who was not doing so well uh, also had a two wheeler uh, the moment you know you got a car uh which was affordable and yet created a next level of sort of social aspiration it created a next social class of people who could own a car or drive a car and therefore uh, it became a quick marker of the fact that i am not the old middle class i am the new higher middle class or the mm. upper middle class owning a sort of four wheeler became a marker of sort of escape from the sort of this middle class which was pretty stagnant for the last 30 40 years and there were people who had done well in life but they had no durables to own or no to sort of show off through which they could tell the world that i moved up in life hmm. it was a specific meaning very specific to the country mm-hmm. you know what i'm wondering could you give me a few more examples of this maybe maybe 30 seconds per example i think that would be fascinating other examples that come to mind to make the point Yeah I mean it's like uh, you know let's say in the case of Kellogg's uh, the breakfast cereal in the you know the indian culture the the notion of a breakfast meal the breakfast was a mini meal which looked a bit like the lunch you know meal you know you ate a smaller meal before you stepped out of the home but the you know the ingredients of it were like the main meal and the whole you know the corn flakes and you know that fact that you could you know you know have something like conflicts as a part of your breakfast ritual it was a process of teaching the indian consumers over 15 20 years that you know this is something that is a legitimate form of breakfast and also things like you know should it should you have it with cold milk or should you have it with hot milk you know indians like hot hot milk and somehow the hot milk makes the you know flakes soggy and sort of actually compromises the the taste of uh the flakes so the multiple levels of learning the fact that you could have this and it could provide you the nutrition to start the day how do you have it should you have it with cold milk or hot milk because the indian palate wanted hot milk you know to feel that 
you actually consume something substantive and something nutritious and something delicious. So that that was an interesting thing. I mean, again, it's like McDonald's, the the Maharaja Burger. Uh, you know, so India is not a meat eating. For it to become mainstream, it couldn't have meat uh, or beef inside the you know the patty. Uh, so it took the construct of the burger, but sort of redesigned the entire patty depending on the local palate completely. So what's inside the burger is completely indigenous. So it's a, again, you know, sort of adoption of the global construct in a very sort of knock, semi-knockdown kind of a format. So you took the format, but you took the, you, you put inside the, the ingredients or the patty which appealed to the Indian palate. It's a very unique uh, way of adoption of the new, where uh, the format is aspirational, the format is modern, but the taste needed to be extremely local. Uh, how does this sort of global brand and the role in life of the Indian consumer, you know, how do they play? Hmm. And uh, also the product and the brand. I mean, I'm consuming the idea of McDonald's, but I want to consume it in a way that still works for my palate. I mean, you know, the taste can't be alien. It's like Coca-Cola, uh, while it was the real thing elsewhere in the world, or, you know, you know platform of happiness, et cetera, et cetera. But in the Indian context, the most uh, successful campaign as a, you know, the platform was Thanda Matlab Coca-Cola, and which actually came from a very, very Indian way of uh, greeting people into your house when you ask them, would you like to have a hot drink or a cold drink? Would you want a you know, would you want a cup of tea or would you want something cold? Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, it sort of occupied the larger category of cold drinks, which were offered as a way of, you know, uh, welcoming somebody or, mm -hmm. you know, hosting somebody. And so Thanda Matlab Coca-Cola actually literally means cold means Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. uh, a cold drink means Coca-Cola. It sort of appropriated a larger uh, cultural category of a cold drink. And is, yeah. is that Coca-Cola example operating at two levels where they identified a use case or an occasion yeah. and then tried to turn it into a bigger brand idea? So the use case or the occasion was that a lot of cold drinks or hot drinks were being served when someone entered someone's home. And then the bigger brand idea was about trying to stand for welcoming while that is also a very convenient argument to try to take over that occasion is that how that operated yeah it did it's it's see the things like the categories like chocolates uh, or cold drinks so india has its own rich tradition of sweets or cold drinks till such time that they were behaving like these global brands uh, the level of empathy for these categories uh, was very limited Hmm. The moment they place themselves in the larger category, a uh, larger cultural category of a cold drink, uh, you know, or something that you can offer as a cold drink or something that you can share with your friends. You know, in the case of chocolate, uh, mita, mita essentially again means like, like thanda is cold, uh, mita is sweet. So, uh, so Cadbury's tried to own the larger cultural category of mithai. And, you know, the sweets which, you know, people share with each other during festivals. So this, uh, how do you place a global brand in this sort of, uh, in the cultural categories which pre-exist in the minds of the Indian consumers mm -hmm. uh, so that there is a meaning that you can appropriate. Coca-Cola is another way of offering a cold drink to somebody else or to consume for myself. 
It's funny yeah. because the idea of a cold welcome in English would not be the same as the idea of a cold welcome in India. And then I guess in Australia, traditionally a cold one was a, a beer, which I know it means that in a lot of places, but especially in Australia. I've worked on a few global brands in Australia and sometimes there were people from the country. There's a bit of nationalism connected to some brands that basically use countries like Australia as a small outpost, which when you're in Australia, you don't necessarily realize how small an outpost it is. And sometimes the people who represent the company who are from the country, which could be Japan or America or Germany, they go through and do a two or three year stint. They might move to another country. And then at some point they often go back home into pretty senior roles because they've, they've seen a region, they've learned, they've become company people. They're part of the cult. I joke, I joke. But sometimes at the same time, they try to apply research from their own country to the country in which they're a visitor. Have you seen much of that behavior from global brands in India that essentially refuse to believe some of what you're saying that yeah. some, you know, that, well, why wouldn't they drink Coca-Cola at every meal? Why is it about a welcome? Have, have yeah. you seen that kind of behavior? I think so. there are two parts to that answer. And one is, I think, purely driven by, uh, you know, money and efficiency, you know, I mean, till such time that we can get away with doing a global piece of work, uh, which will broadly work in the market. Other end of that conversation is that India is a big enough market for my category, for my brand. Uh, we can begin to create or we will begin to understand the local culture or the local consumption patterns in a far more detailed way and try and create a marketing mix which works, which is more India specific. So my sense is that the degree of localization, uh, you know, that I have a global model or from my home market model and why shouldn't it work, it begins to uh, change as the size of the brand or the size of the market, you know, begins to sort of dawn in a way. If the marketer is coming in with an understanding that India is an important market and uh, I mean, it's 1.3 billion people, not necessarily with the level of purchasing power, which would be there in a first world market, but it's a big market. It's a strategically important market and we are here for the long sort of play. Then they begin to invest in that light. Uh, that they're trying to build a global brand in a very local, uh, culturally sensitive way. I mean, yeah, so you find all kinds of, uh, you know, models where people start off trying to do the global thing, uh, the global template, learn from it, see what of that works and what is not working. I mean, a good marketing is good marketing. I mean, you know, people are still trying to build a business, you know, through the brand. Uh, I, I think a lot of the global companies, PNGs and, you know, maybe the other, you know, the thing that, brand building or you know conceiving a communication happens at a central level you save money in creating a copy you do some minor versions of it and run it you know elsewhere in the world i think it's also budget driven money driven in a best case scenario and an ideal scenario ultimately uh, the consumer my sense is does not buy a brand because it's a global brand you know it has to play a role in the life of them uh, you know their lives they have to fulfill a need and most successful global brands feel very local when they're really working. I mean, Coca-Cola talks a very, very Indian idiom in this market. Uh, Cadbury's chocolate, and these are like massive brands. I mean, you know, uh, Cadbury's has like uh, extremely high market share. And I, I think to the consumers, they don't feel like they're, you know, they're, they're global brands. I mean, they have a relationship with those brands, you know, which is very, very, uh, very culturally rich. So I think the trajectory is that, mm. but I think budgets drive 
uh, when do you let go of the global template and when you sort of start creating origination uh, you know of the work in the market for the market so it's a journey i think and do you ever have to create different work for different parts of india is that a common practice yeah it is actually so i mean india is a subcontinent uh, you know it's 1.3 billion people and each state in the country is probably bigger than a country in europe and uh, uh, it's culturally very very diverse uh, again i mean you know so the conversation we were having from the global to indian perspective we end up having a very very similar conversation within the con- context of india where you know should this be one copy for india or should it be uh, you know one copy for north or the you know hindi speaking market because in the south which is again massive market uh, for a lot of categories because it behaves in a very specific way it's a completely different culture it's a very different consumption culture it has different motivations i mean it's as diverse as you can get and within the south of india there are four or five different languages actually <laughs> you know and each of those languages frankly are like again very very unique and specific cultures in their own so to what degree of aggregation or to what degree of generalization uh, do you go for so depending on you know how big an advertiser you are you'll probably uh, do a specific copy for north and probably for some markets in the south and maybe for the east uh, what tends to happen is that north and west you can probably get away with one language in south you have four or five distinct languages if you need to do either a new copy or versions of that east is again a culture by itself so it's a depending on money and depending on how big are those specific markets you know you you can keep <laughs> you can keep creating different levels of culturally embedded copy so it's again a function of how big the market is and how big the budget is it does celebrity play a strong role in advertising in india it's uh, almost a stupid yeah. question i think i know the answer but how <laughs> has okay let me ask yeah. you a better question because that's a naive question yeah has the role of celebrity in advertising changed in the past 10 years in india i i mean again like to most things the answer is yes and no because again it's a see what celebrity does in a in the context of a market like india is that uh, it gives you very quick recognition and a quick sort of credibility and stature uh, let's say a regional brand trying to glow uh, go national again depending on the stature of the sort of celebrity that you you know you use it becomes a very shorthand for how big the brand is how how credible the brand is so in in some ways cricket and bollywood given the diversity of this country these guys are the people from cricket and bollywood are the only sort of real national icons if you like you know who have nationally recognizability so they become easy sort of people to you know dip into to get a sense that you know if i have a virat kohli who's the captain of the indian cricket team or if i have a famous film star people across the country will recognize the brand or will recognize the communication and it becomes a quick shorthand for that over a period of time i think the the idea of the person and idea of the brand trying to find some sort of resonance in that or some sort of correspondence in that you know that's happening but i mean it's a relatively uh, consumption wise it's a it's not a very mature market you know i mean a lot of people are coming into the consumption of a lot of these categories for the first time and therefore uh, not very sophisticated use of celebrity is needed just the fact that a big star is endorsing a brand mm. or is part of the advertising of a brand becomes uh, reassurance enough or sort of endorsement enough 
for that brand to do well. Let's uh, let's talk planning. You were a planner mm. uh, for a period of time, and there have been a few people, quite a few people, I think, really, who've graduated from planning into more managerial roles. What were some of the more challenging parts of your growth into not doing planning and doing managerial roles? I mean, personally, I found the big challenge uh, really of uh, sort of letting go, if you like. <laughs> you know, the, the thing that, you know, as a, as a planner, you know, you want to own the solution. You want to construct something and drive it and sort of, you know, look at the client in the eye and sort of, you know, get him to see the point. I mean, you want, it's a one-on-one play. I mean, at least the way I like to, I mean, I, uh, what I enjoyed the part was the fact that it was my answer and I was working with a client and trying to get him to see my point of view. Uh, as a manager, uh, you're an influence or you shape, but you have to let go because there are other senior planners and other people who are driving a point of view. And, uh, and planning is a, you know, it's a specific kind of creativity. I mean, it's, it, 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 there's no one right rational answer. There is a subjectivity to, to the sort of solution that you offer. And it mm-hmm. comes from, you know, your worldview, your experiences. And, you know, so in my case, one of the big things was sort of to learn to appreciate someone else's subjectivity. And the, and the point of view that they brought to a problem and to sort of enjoy that and, and to enjoy different kinds of people and different ways of thinking and to sort of build on that and to learn from that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other, I mean, other thing is, of course, you know, the, uh, so you, because you're the senior guy in the room and, uh, and when you're talking to a senior client, sort of driving a point hard. I mean, my temptation to deep dive into a problem and to become the planner and to not you know, I, I think I have to, I've, I've had to work a lot on that here. Mm-hmm. How many planners do you have at TPWA? It's a small team, but uh, the percentage of planners within the group are, is fairly high. So we have about seven, eight planners, group of about 80 odd client facing people. So it's about, about 10% if you like. Oh, yeah. I, I like that number. I got to the point in some of the agencies I was in in America where I calculated the amount of planning time I would often, or strategy time I would often scope on a project when I was a digital producer. And then mm-hmm. also I thought about some of the headcounts of some of my favorite agencies in Sydney. And I used to say, look, let's, can we please make planning a default activity and just dedicate 10% of time and money to it? Whether or not a planner or a strategist does it, at least having it as a default part of every scope means that a head of planning doesn't have to argue all the time to get onto scopes that often they don't even know exist because in some of the agencies, the planning people aren't involved in don't meet the clients or they're not involved with the scope. And so you continually have to walk around buildings trying to find what's going on so that you can argue for planning. And then you have to argue for the craft of planning. And it's such a crazy it's a silly game. It's ridiculous. To me, for planning to work, it needs to be a default activity and it needs to be championed by the sea level people. Otherwise, it's just, it's total make-believe. How do you scope planning on projects and has that changed in your career? Yeah, so I think uh, just to sort of uh, build on the earlier point you were making, I mean, that's the interesting part about, I mean, also the TBWA system that because disruption is the operating system and disruption in itself I mean, it's difficult to figure out where does sort of strategy end and where the creativity begins because, you know, it forces you to be creative in the, you know, the deception, I mean, in the strategic thought itself. So sort of uh, the offer of a, 
uh, of a planner or the output of a planner is pretty much you know a new thought or a breakthrough thought and sometimes that passes off as the brand platform and also our sort of global ceo has mandated in a way that 12% of the uh, direct cost of, of an agency should be on planning so really um, yeah. is that true so, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, he tracks that so it's a uh, yeah that's so wonderful a, yeah so it's a good thing i mean i think one of these interesting things about it just on that and it's a, it's a point i want to make through you <laughs> through this conversation is i love yeah. that so yeah. the glo- i'm going to repeat this the global ceo of tbwa mandates that 12% of essentially head hours go to planning and tracks that yes that is incredible yeah. i lost breath trying to argue for that in places and the game that I had to play was find the projects, try to argue for the craft of planning, try to get planners on them, then find the scopes to see if planners got on them, sometimes let people pitch for free, which is pretty common, and then try to chase the projects as they were won. And then by that time, people were like, oh, we don't need planning anymore because they never intended to pay for it in some of the large agencies that aren't used to planning. And I was like, yeah. just why, is, why am I doing this? This is just make it default, change the system so that, there's whatever the systems are, whether they're temp- templates or there's uh, some kind of spreadsheet that everyone uses, just put 10% there. And if they don't want it, let them argue out of it. It's such a crazy game to play to yeah. hire, hire planners and not make them a default thing. It, and it crushes people. It crushes souls. So I, I love that. So 12% at TBWA, I am going to be yelling that from the various <laughs> rooms upon which I stand. That's great. And then, are the types of projects or the parts of the projects that they're doing, has that changed in the past few years? What kind of, what kind uh, of work do they do at TBWA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there are a couple of things happening. First of all, I mean, as the world is changing, you need uh, different kind of thinkers to make sense of what is changing, you know, of the world, if you like. So if at the regional level, let's say in, in our sort of Singapore team, we have uh, five regional level planners, pretty sort of heavy hitting types. So there's a guy who's a chief data officer. There's a guy who gets the performance part of it. There's a guy who's the sort of chief disruption planner. There's a guy who's a chief communication planner. So it's almost like there are, hey, that's actually one of the interesting parts or the thing that within planning itself, there are now super specializations. I mean, it's like, you know, the guys who, uh, you know, as the the whole marketing game is getting more and more complex, there are people who need to come in with a certain degree of expertise and specialization in the domain that they talk. I mean, the way we are looking at it as an agency is that as the world is changing, people who can help make sense of that change are the people in the planning department in a way. So, I mean, they, they are at the leading edge of making sense and integrating that thinking into the creative outputs that we create and the kind of creative outputs that we create and the frequency of those creative outputs that we create. So it's, it's that. And a lot of work, to, to your point, is also, let's say, what is now broadly being called consulting work, you know, because, you know, consulting has become sort of a, it's when you don't necessarily know, uh, you know, when you have an unfocused anxiety in the head of a CEO. So I know something is going on, I can't make sort of head or tail of it. A lot of CEOs who are trying to deal with this changing world they have the most interesting questions. They are more sort of posers or they are more sort of, I think we can do better than this. Can you help me pinpoint the problem? Can you help me actually define the problem better? Can you actually figure out what is the real problem? And, uh, and then how do you solve that? So I think uh, a lot of the uh, leading edge work is happening when you're talking to people who own the business problems, who are at the sort of, you know, this leading edge of trying to build businesses and they have 
real problems. Uh, you know, as you sort of come down uh, without, you know, there are good marketing, you know, CMOs and, you know, the good sort of salespeople. But sometimes, you know, the notion of doing good marketing becomes by itself, you know, slightly removed from trying to make a real impact, you know, on the organization or on the business and, you know, sometimes some cool stuff and the whole, what is the matrices that you're going for and how do you justify your existence? I think it becomes a really complex game and uh, it's, it's most delightful when you're talking to the CEOs and they have an interesting problem and, uh, and you can really uh, help solve a real business challenge. I mean, I love the kind of question, you know, a lot of these founder CEOs and there's a pattern to it. I want to change my story. Okay, is the kind of a, okay, I, I have got locked in this kind of a way. In my audience, I'm beginning to, you know, get seen in a certain way. I want, I want to be seen differently. Now, for that, you know, should your positioning be changed? Should your customer experience be changed? I mean, how do you build a brand, you know, without any preconceived notions? And where are the places where you actually play a role in, in to create the disproportionate impact, you know, in the audience that you're trying to look for? So I think, at least I'm enjoying this first principle-based solutions, you know, uh, when you talk to a client who has an interesting problem and then you construct a solution to solve the problem where the problem is. And, mm-hmm. you know, rather than saying, Gee, I'll give you a good television commercial or I'll give you a good social program. So, I mean, I, I, and planners lead these conversations. Okay. And so, you know, because creative guys end up, I mean, I don't know how it is elsewhere in the world, but they, they end up. If you like, if you break it up into conceptual creativity and executional creativity, I mean, I think that the conceptual creativity, uh, without trying to generalize it, tends to reside more often in the planners. And therefore, uh, solving the sort of problem at the thought level and then getting these creative guys to execute the hell out of it and do it really well. Again, I hesitate to draw any generalization because every, you know, the different people do all kinds of things well. but by and large, that's the way it sort of works out better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a norm in yeah. ma- the markets in which I've operated. At, at best, I think a planner would hope in the markets in which I've lived, which is really just Australia and New York, although I've, I've traveled and worked in different places. Uh, I, th- I think the hope is, is closer to a volleyball metaphor where a planner might set the ball and then a creative will come in and spike it. Uh, and and sometimes there are interesting solutions to business problems or brand problems that will come out of planning. And some sometimes an agency will support that. Other times they have to dress them up. Uh, and and also not all planning is effective, and not all planners are effective. And sometimes they get just lost for a long period of time or lost on a project. So it's not to not to glamorize and to say that one is better than the other. Let me ask you one last question. So your CEO in India, rapidly growing economy. At the same time, you're working in an industry which is getting shaken around a little bit in the rest of the world. And maybe the rest of the world is looking at India and hoping that India and its growth will save some parts of the rest of the world. And at the same time, you identify the company in which you're working as something of a startup. So point being, there's a lot of stuff going on and maybe some pressure on India how do you set goals for TBWA India, knowing that everything's changing so quickly right now? Yeah, it's a very, 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 very good question because and how do we know that we are doing well? Uh, are we getting better? Yeah. At least the way it works in my head is that uh, there are two, three things that are we solving different kinds of problems in a really good way? How interesting are we in the kind of interest 
the the nature of problems that we're solving because to me the one of the big factors is the rate of learning if you like you know i mean it's like if the starting point is that the old model does not work and the you know so called experts uh, worked well in the old paradigm and the new paradigm is still emerging or will get formed depending on how things shape up so how quickly so what are the diverse kind of things we are doing how interesting projects are we doing and how quickly are we learning from that and building that back into the sort of the way that we do things so if you so there is a sense of uh, the number of experiments that we did the number of things that we tried okay so that is uh, that is one thing and in the in the process of doing that are we able to uh, command a good price i mean you know are we able to monetize that well are we able to create real value in the eyes of the customer in the eyes of the clients so if i were to pin it down it's the uh, interestingness or the diversity of the nature of problems we are solving and how well are we solving it so you know how do you sort of increase the pool of theories or hypotheses or the perspectives within the agency and our ability to every time we going back to the client see are we able to command a good price you know developing enough credibility that we'll be able to solve interesting kind of problems uh, in interesting sort of ways and you know have enough credibility with the clients for them to pay the right price for us where are you most active on the internet where can people find you yeah i'm on twitter i'm on instagram i'm not active i'm a i'm more a lurker I'm a heavy consumer of different thoughts and perspectives. I haven't put myself out or presented my point of view because uh, I mean I suffer from this <laughs> uh, the feeling that I don't know enough to have a <laughs> strong point of view on anything. But but I am a I'm a heavy consumer of content. <laughs> and I, the strong point of view is funny. I often express stuff, and then I wonder if that was really a strong point of view or whether I'm stating it in a strong way to get to a strong point of view. And I'm totally okay with both of those things being true, and for yeah. one of them being true for a day or a week and then changing you know i think that's part of just the idea of being being open to one's own change and that's totally yeah. fine and interesting well thank you so much i really appreciate you making time to have a chat with me on sweathead today and best wishes with the startup and no doubt you'll be making a huge display at can and many of the advertising award shows over the coming years govin pande from tbwa best wishes in your ceoing Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mark, yeah. and uh, good fun talking. And uh, hope it was useful. <laughs> totally. Thank you. Peace.